back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease for this time. If you're in the back and you want uh, chairs, there's a whole bunch of folding chairs there if you don't want to sit down on the floor as you like. So, over these last weeks, I was away um, this past week doing a retreat down in Yucca Valley. I'm happy to be back. Um, and so you had the pleasure of Nina Wise's teachings, those of you who came. Over the past weeks, um, past few weeks anyway, I've been reflecting about what kinds of teachings might be useful given the um, uncertainty of the times. And after some talks about the current situation, kind of um, world situation since September uh, 11th especially, it's felt like there are certain key um, practices and understandings from Buddhist teachings and psychology that are worth repeating and considering um, th that in a sense are quite timeless um, and are important to remember, especially when things are unsettled and difficult around us. I know also that today is Veterans Day, and sometimes on days like Veterans Day or Labor Day or Memorial Day, I'll give a talk that really honors that particular holiday, um, which I won't do tonight so explicitly, but I would like to let you know that Veterans Day, um, his name has changed, actually. It was originally entitled Armistice Day, and it was created um, as the Peace Day at the end of World War I, which people thought was going to be the war to end wars. Um, unfortunate mistake in their, on their part. Um, so it wasn't just a day to honor veterans, although one does want to honor those who've served or given their, um, put themselves in danger for some uh, defense of their country and what they value, all of the people who've done that. Um, but it was really more to honor the end of war. That's its root. And perhaps um, it's still worth some prayers for the end of war. I talked to somebody who's been involved for a lot of years in the training of the U.S. Army Special Forces. And some of the guys 
who are in Afghanistan and so forth, um, and asked, well, how are the guys in your community, in your unit and so forth, looking at all this? And they said, they, they shake their heads, they'll do their job and do it very well, but actually they don't necessarily think it's such a good plan to have a war in Afghanistan, um, especially the ones that have been out in the in battles over a long period of time in the past. They know what, you know, the difficulty of the situation. They said it's a little bit like, the, this person said, it's a little bit like medieval bloodletting, which was supposed to be helpful for the body. But then at some point even the physicians realized, the medieval doctors, that bloodletting wasn't really a great thing for the patients, but the patients still wanted it anyway. And um, the doctors didn't really know what else to do. So that's a little bit the situation, this person said, how the situation feels. Adventure, I mean war even itself is a kind of adventure. The oldest, most widespread <laughs> stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes and heroines who venture into the wildness at the risk of their lives and bring back tales of the world beyond the ordinary. It could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell an adventure, and that a man or woman risking their life in perilous encounters constitutes the original definition of what is worth talking about. Okay, quote number one. But then this puts it in perspective. This is from Vladimir Stef Stephenson, who was a polar explorer, one of the great ones. Having an adventure shows that someone is incompetent that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. <sighs> so, there are adventures and then there's kind of honesty about adventures. Um, in uncertain times and in times of difficulty, one of the things that's most important is to be able to listen inwardly to what we know and most deeply value as the world changes around us so that our lives and our actions in times of difficulty can come from the place that is truest and wisest in our heart. Because in these times, both individually and collectively as a nation, we are making karma, if you will, that could last for a long time. One of the central teachings in the Buddhist psychology is that with all the experiences that come to us as sense experiences, sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts, and the knowing, the consciousness of them, that as these experiences arise, the, in our own mind or heart, there is a whole array of possible responses. Responses that are called beautiful or benevolent or bringing happiness of love, of wisdom, of wakefulness, of compassion, of clarity. And then responses that lead us to inevitable suffering further. Responses of greed, responses of hatred, prejudice, responses of based on aversion and fear and on denial, 
And those responses make uh, difficulty for us. If we respond from the small sense of self, the body of fear, our responses are likely to be confused um, and causes of suffering. But if we respond with an open heart, from compassion and clarity, then those tend to lead more directly and immediately to happiness, as it's taught in Buddhist psychology. Now, one other quality that's really important to understand in how we respond to the world, all the things that happen, which we don't have a lot of control over, I'm sure you've noticed that, right? I mean, not just the events in New York or Afghanistan, but you hardly have the control over the events in your own family. In fact, if you look honestly, you hardly have control over the events in your own mind. Not very much, you know. It thinks what it wants a lot of the time. And it has no pride, right? In doing the key quality um, in understanding then how to navigate all the experiences that come to us, a key quality, is a neutral quality in the mind and heart that's called in Sanskrit or Pali chetana, which means intention. Or sometimes it's just called the will to do. And in the words of the Buddha, mind is the forerunner of all things. With the mind, we create our world, act with a pure heart and mind, and happiness will follow you as closely as your own shadow, and act with an impure heart or mind, with one caught in anger and revenge and greed, and suffering will follow you as closely as the cart follows, the wheel of the cart follows the oxen that pulls it. Um, Or the way Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian sage, um, put it, See if I can find you here, Tagore. Um, he said, I don't see it here. He said, um, most people believe that the mind is a receptor, like a mirror, reflecting the experiences that come to it through the senses, and not understanding that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. A little tiny story for you from up in the Eskimo country um, in a village um, some many years ago, an Eskimo hunter went to one of the local missionaries who was a priest who'd been converting the Eskimos to his particular form of Christianity. And the the Eskimo hunter asked him, if I didn't know about God and sin, would I then go to hell? No, said the priest, not if you didn't know. Then why, asked the Eskimo quite earnestly, did you ever tell me? So depending on the stories that we have, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, it doesn't matter, fatalist or, or optimist, depending on the stories that we believe and follow, there is an enormous creation that comes out of those in our life. And the power of this quality of mind, of intention, that 
precedes our action. We notice it in little things as we become meditative and mindful. Suppose that you're a smoker and you decide you want to stop smoking cigarettes. Um, but you get into some situation, you have a meal and you're talking with somebody, and all of a sudden, without even noticing it, um, your hand has gone you know, into your pocket or whatever and pulled out the pack of cigarettes and put one in your mouth and lit the cigarette and you're starting to smoke it and all of a sudden you wake up and it, the whole thing was on automatic pilot. You know what that experience is like? Some people are shaking their head, yes, whether it's smoking or something else. When we become more aware, the teaching of the Buddha of mindfulness, we begin to notice the desire and the intention Oh, before we reach for the cigarette, and then there becomes a choice. Should I follow that intention or not? But if we're not aware, we won't even see it. Now, it happens that that's a small-scale um, description of intention and becoming aware of it. But intention also can be directed in a very broad or... Um, profound way as a guide for our own lives. If we look at the power of this creative element of mind, we see that the mind builds cities and roads and uh, creates all the manufactured things. I mean, everything that you can see, whether it's these glasses or the, the lights or the table or the electricity or the whole city of San Francisco, little by little somebody imagined it and they said, well, let's try and build it that way and let's add that. And, and so out of creativity and building up and imagination, great things are created. But with the same power of imagination linked with aggression, with racism, with hatred, with greed, incredible destruction can also take place and does regularly. We have had something like 70 wars and civil wars and, and other kinds of wars since the end of World War II. As a human species, it's not a very good record. So the mind can create civilizations and it can destroy them as well. Now, it's said, an old story from the Buddhist mythology, is that long, long before you were born in this incarnation, if you believe such stories, you don't have to, they're true, but you don't have to. <laughs> um, very long time ago, when you were much younger, the Buddha was said to have been born in India, as these myths go, as a young um, man in a village. And at that time, there was a previous Buddha who lived in India named Dipankara. And Dipankara Buddha was coming to the village of this young man and was supposed to have been the most magnificent, compassionate, gracious presence. And this young man, when he saw Dipankara Buddha enter into his village, was so moved, he fell to his feet in front of the Buddha, even in the mud and the dirt, to bow and pay his respects. And he had a thought in his mind, whatever it will take for me to become like this being, I, I vow, I set the intention of my heart that I will do that. And um, it's said then that he began to practice patience, compassion, loving kindness, truthfulness, clarity, wisdom, um, wise effort, the, the 
the perfections of a Buddha, um, for a hundred thousand Mahakalpas and four immensities before he became Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha of, uh, that we know of historical India, at least as the myth is told. Now, an immensity or, or a Mahakalpa, the description for a Mahakalpa is a mountain as high as Mount Everest, seven miles high, seven miles wide, and seven miles long. And every hundred years, a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak, dragging it across the top of the mountain, wearing it away slightly. And when that huge mountain is worn down by the silk scarf of this bird, that's one Mahakalpa, right? <laughs> so it's a long period of time that he practiced patience. If you're having trouble this week, you know, it's just a process, right? But really what it says is that it's outside of time. It's inconceivable in our mind of past and present and future. This is something that's timeless that's spoken of. But the Buddha took this vow, no matter what, I will perfect patience and compassion and appear however long it takes until I can become like that being. Um, and Buddhism is filled with these stories of the directed intention, or sometimes it's translated as the aspiration of the heart, to be a, a bodhisattva, a being of compassion, to serve all beings, to share whatever I have so that it benefits others, the sharing of merit. Um, and it's a, it's a very wonderful thing to be part of a culture where that belief and that level of generosity and sharing is woven into the daily lives of people, which it is if you're part of the culture in Tibet or in Thailand or Burma or places like that. Um, and it has a very different feel to it than a more materialistic culture, as we might know, which is goal-oriented. But the goals are different. The intention is different. Instead of the intention, may what I've done today bring enlightenment to all beings. May it serve everyone. Those kind of things. It's, you know, um, how's the market doing today? Or, or whatever our, our form of measurement is. Um, let me see if I can find the right uh, story in here. There's a, a story of a young boy um, who went to his father and, 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 and working on his homework and said, I have to make a presentation um, tomorrow to my class. And his father said, well, his father was actually a military man who said, well, that's very simple. You have to set your goal very clearly. You have to decide what you're going to do um, to reach that goal. You have to make the steps to attain it, and then you have to make sure everyone understands those steps so that they can completely attain your goal, their goal. That's what you should teach in your class. And his son, of course, looked at his father and said, it's not going to work, Dad. And he said, it always works. I always teach people how to set their goals, the steps needed, and how to accomplish them. And the boy shook his head and said, Dad, it's just not going to work. I can hear his tone of voice just like my own teenage daughter saying, Dad, it's not, not that way. Um, and his father said, and why not? And the son said, well, because they asked me to give a talk about sex. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, does it? A lot of the important things don't quite work that way. Love doesn't work that way either, does it? Communion, intimacy, caring. There is a tremendous power to the intention of the heart. 
And if one looks in all the stories from the, again, from the time of the Buddha, there are a lot of animal stories that are told. They're kind of children's stories, but of deer in the forest or owls or, or rabbits or foxes or, or whatever. One time the Buddha was born as this parrot, um, this bird in a great forest, and a fire came. And the parrot was supposed to be um, well, was a friend to all the other creatures, this very generous being, in this story anyway. Um, and when the forest started to burn, all the other creatures were trying to run out of the fire, and the parrot didn't know what it could do to help, but it thought, I cannot abandon my friends. And so it flew up out of the great fire of this dry forest burning, and dove into the stream nearby and got its wings wet and then flew back through all the smoke to find one or two friends on the forest floor and shake the drops of water off to try to help save that one little mouse or that little fox that it knew. And then it would fly back in the stream, back and forth like that in this huge forest fire, sacrificing, in a sense, its own life. And as this story is told, these are all these great old Indian myths, it said the gods were sitting and having a great, um, delightful um, evening, and all of a sudden the, the, the seat on which the chief of the gods was sitting became hot, which happened when there was something unusual going on down on earth. So as the story is told, the chief god looked down and he saw, this is very interesting, here's this little parrot going back and forth thinking that it's going to save these creatures from this huge raging fire. That's the story. And as the, one of the great gods looked down and saw that, he said, I've got to go check this out and see what's happening. And he tumbled down from the heavens in this story, and as he tumbled down, he became a great eagle and floated down and began to fly along with the little parrot. And the little parrot's dunking himself in the river and going out and flying through the flames and trying to put a little water on its friends. And the eagle's flying along saying, you know, what do you think you're doing? I mean, here's a huge forest fire and you can sprinkle a few little tidbits of water on your friends. And do you think that's going to make any difference in this world? And the little parrot's really tired and, you know, dusty from the smoke and says, you know, I really don't need any advice at this time. This is that's not really very helpful. <laughs> you know, if you want to be a little more helpful, you could dunk yourself in the street. Maybe we could save another creature or two. And the eagle flies along and says, I don't know, this whole venture seems, seems to me really misguided. I mean, they're just these great forces. And the parrot said, as long as I can beat my wings, as long as I draw breath and I can save even one of my friends, why should I not do it? And dunked himself in and went through the fire again. And the eagle flew along with him and watched, and as he did, his heart softened. And he saw what an amazing love from this tiny little bird. And as he did, he began to weep, little te eagle tears down his <laughs> cheeks. But of course, as these stories go, since he was not just an eagle, but he was one of the great gods, you know what happens when the gods weep. And all of a sudden the clouds appeared and broke open and huge torrents of rain poured down and put out the fire. And the parrot said, that's more like it, thank you. <laughs> that's better. And all the animals scurried out of their holes and came back and, you know, hooray for the little parrot. This is the children's story 
that tells this teaching. Um, but it has in it archetypally as a kind of myth. It talks about the power of our intention. We can't know how it's going to work out, but there is some way that in difficulty, what matters most is what direction do you turn your heart, like the compass. Mahatma Gandhi put it this way. He said, I claim to be no more than an average person with less than average ability. And I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. I'm just an average guy, said Mahatma Gandhi. Anybody who makes the same effort and cultivates the same faith. A beautiful thing to say. Now, the Buddhist monasteries, the kind of training we had there, were filled with a kind of beautiful repetition of intention. We would get up early in the morning and do our chants, praising to the Buddha, but really it was praising the quality of awakening that's possible in every being, awakening of wisdom and compassion. We would chant um, about the nature of life, of death and old age and sickness that were part of the, the natural uh, nature of, of living in a human body. And may we then use this day, this day that we have been given, may we use it well because we don't know how many days we'll have. We do chants of gratitude. Then we go out on alms round with our begging bowl as a monk. Um, and it was one of the most beautiful and moving experiences of my life to go out, especially way up along the Mekong River in, in the border of Laos and Thailand, out in these very simple villages. I would walk but you know, the little dikes of the rice paddies and go to a village, and sometimes they'd be so poor, and they would give you some rice or a little bit of curry, some of their food, and you're not allowed to say thank you. You know, it's not what you do. You keep your eyes down and you kind of have to at least pretend to be meditating and dignified, even though, you know, whatever your mind is doing as a young monk, you're training yourself to try to do that. Um, but in fact, you know, so if somebody puts a big mango in, you don't say, oh, I love mangoes, thank you. No, it's like you just kind of take everything and some days you get a lot and some days you don't. But what was beautiful is that in the poorest villages, um, they were so poor, and yet they would give of the little bit of food they had as if to say, we so value what you represent, compassion, wakefulness, the, the care that you as a monk or a nun represent in our society, the, the beauty that we'll give of the little bit of food we have so that you can practice and inspire us with that. And then instead of thanking them, you get back. And what happens is it makes you dedicate your life. Say, if these people are willing to give of the little food they have, I really better do this well. And there's some way in which it was very, very touching. It's also true, my teacher Ajahn Chah, when he came to the West with a number of monks and nuns, different times to England and America, he started a little monastery in England. He was invited by the British Buddhist Society to come. And it was at a little apartment down in London. 
um, wasn't a big forest monastery yet, but he said, we're, we're monks, we'll accept what you give. So they had this little apartment. And then um, the senior, he and the senior American monk, Ajahn Sumedho, would go out every day in Hyde Park or wherever it was with their bowls on alms round to get food. And uh, the American, uh, Sumedho said, why are we doing this? Nobody knows you know, to feed us. And, and Ajahn Chah said, well, they don't know yet, you know, <laughs> but how will they ever learn if we don't go out? And then you talk, they say, what are you doing? I said, I'm a monk, and what's that bowl? You know, I receive food, and that's how people learn. So Sumedho would go out every day with his bowl and usually get nothing, just questions, you know, although he said one time some kid came up to him and stuck part of his lunch in the bowl, actually, <laughs> but school kid. Sometimes people would take things out of his bowl. <laughs> And he went back and he complained to Ajahn Chah and he said, why, why, you know, I don't see a lot of purpose in it. And Ajahn Chah said, it's this way, when the Buddha, in the myth of the young Prince Siddhartha, went out from his palace, from this beautiful life that he lived, he saw what were called the four heavenly messengers. He saw an old person who he hadn't seen someone that old. And he asked his charioteer, who does this happen to? And the charioteer said, Oh, everybody, if you're lucky. And that really made him stop and think. And then he saw a sick person, really sick. Well, who does this happen to? Oh, almost everyone, sire. Young prince, oh. And then he saw the first dead body he ever saw. Remember what, you, what it was like to see the first dead person? It's really a shock. Who does this happen to? He asked, well, all of us. And then the fourth of the messengers, he saw a monk. And he said, who is that yogi, that monk? And the charioteer said, that's someone who has dedicated his life to seeking an end to the suffering of the world. So when they were in England, and Ajahn Sumedho said, well, why should I go out in the streets of London when no one understands and no one gives us any food? And my teacher said, because it's possible that the next Buddha is walking down the street this morning just waiting to see someone like you in robes to be reminded that they too have a quest to discover freedom and compassion for all beings. And so you have to go out there in case someone is waiting to see you. And he would go out every morning. And what was beautiful in all of this was not that you were doing it for some particular result, but rather that the intention of the heart was let me lead my life so that no matter what happens, I'm acting out of my deepest love and my greatest care. And sure, terrible things will happen sometimes, and sometimes beautiful things will happen. This is a story from a a young boy with cancer. My teacher asked me to write this. Why Are We Born was a really hard paper to write. At first, for a long time, I couldn't think of anything, but now I think I know something to say. I think God made us each born for a different reason. He doesn't want us to do the same things, so that's why he makes us all different. If God gives you a great voice, maybe he wants you to sing, or else if God wants you to be a farmer, he might give you to a family that lives on a farm animals and you're not afraid of them. And maybe if God makes you grow to be seven feet tall, maybe he wants you to play for the Lakers or the Celtics. 
When my friend Kim died from her cancer, I asked my mom if God was going to make Kim die when she was only seven, why did he make her born at all? But my mom said even though she was only seven, she changed people's lives. What that means is like her brother or sister could be the scientist that discovers the cure for cancer, and they decided to do that because of Kim. And like me too, I used to wonder why did God pick on me and give me cancer? And maybe it was because he wanted me to be a doctor who takes care of kids with cancer. So when they say, Dr. Jason, sometimes I get so scared I'm going to die, or you don't know how weird it is to be the only bald kid in your whole school, I can say, oh yes I do. When I was a little boy, I had cancer too. And look at all my hair now. Someday your hair will grow back. So it's not so much what the circumstances are that come to us, but what is the intention or spirit with which we meet them? Can we bring our heart to the life we've been given? I had a friend who did the Tibetan three-year retreats. Actually, he did two of these three-year retreats. He was in retreat for seven or eight years. And we were talking about dream yoga, um, where you do lucid dreaming. And I've done it in my own long retreats and retreat practice. Um, but we were kind of comparing notes. And I said, so how does your tradition teach the yoga of being awake while you are dreaming? And he said, well, it comes at a certain stage when you're already very mindful and attentive because you've been practicing for a year or two in retreat. And then when you begin dream yoga, what you do is every day for a month or two, several times a day, you make the inner intention, I will be awake um, or I will be mindful while I dream or may I be mindful as I fall asleep and as I dream. And you say it to yourself over and over, early in the day, middle of the day, late in the day, and before you fall asleep. And you keep doing it with that very strong intention. And after a while, guess what happens? You fall asleep because you put so much intention in it. And you begin to be aware, oh, I'm falling asleep, and there's the dreams. So that's the way that that initial piece of dream yoga is taught in those Tibetan retreats. What that means is that it's not that we make an intention once, but that we plant, we decide what kind of seeds we're going to plant in this world, and we plant them over and over to make a beautiful garden. When I was about to get married, um, almost 20 years ago, I went to talk to some friends um, who a couple, an old Quaker couple that I admired very much, they were in their late 60s, and I said to them, I asked the question, I said, how can you be sure? You know, you make this vow, I will marry this person, you know, for in sickness and health, for good, rich and for poor, till the end of my life and so forth. How can you know, um, make such a vow and really know it's the, the right thing and that you, you'll keep it? Um, and they said, you don't. And I was really shocked because they had this wonderful, loving marriage. I said, you don't? They said, you don't make a vow like that. They said, actually, you make it over every day. And that was such a 
a wise answer. Um, in Zen, they say, today's satori is tomorrow's mistake, right? Or what we're after, I said another Zen master, is enlightenment one moment after another. That is, in each moment, we have the opportunity to plant the seed or to turn our hearts in a particular direction, to make the intention. And it might be the intention for compassion or the intention for wakefulness or integrity. Now, it also has certain limits. This is not like saying intention is the same as a kind of affirmation about whatever you want to happen will happen. Um, it doesn't work quite that way either. Here's one passage from the Buddha where he says, there are certain things which no monk and no god and no Buddha, no being can bring about. What sorts of things? That what is subject to old age should not grow old. What is subject to sickness should not be sick. What is subject to decay or death should not decay or pass away. No monk or nun, no yogi or teacher, no Buddha, nor God, nor any being, through their intention, can make such a thing occur because it is not in the nature of things themselves. So then what is this intention? How do we understand its limits? We can't say, all right, I won't grow old. It doesn't work that way. Or I'm not going to think anymore. Try that one in your meditation. <laughs> All that is is just another thought, right? <laughs> An apple seed can't say, I want to be a mango. But instead, given the garden that is ours to care for, we can plant seeds, water, fertilize, care for them, and manifest what is really possible. To awaken to our Buddha nature is to manifest what is possible for a human being, the most beautiful human being that you can be. Oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. So the idea isn't that a sunflower tries to become a rose or a daffodil. A sunflower wants to be the best sunflower that it can be. And we forget that. I mean, we see all these other things we're supposed to be. You think you're supposed to be somebody else. It's like the little girl whose mother teaches in the university. It's an art teacher, right? A professor of art. Her mother was leaving for school to teach one day, and this little six-year-old girl went up to her and said, Mommy, when you go to school to teach, what is it you do? And she said, Well, I teach um, painting and drawing to my classes, to all the people that come there. And the little girl looked at her quite wide-eyed and said, you mean they forget? <laughs> I teach how to paint and how to draw. You mean people forget? Something in us actually knew. Something in us knows, even from children, from, from, from early on, of, what, of who we are. And then we do forget. And so in a way, to practice, to meditate, is to remember and to renew the most beautiful intention in our life. I'm an artist. When my second daughter was born, after a difficult labor, 
we had an emergency cesarean operation. We were really worried. I was at the hospital. I remember talking with the doctor about what I did for a living. I said I was an artist, and he confided back in me, I wish I'd been a musician because I love to play the concert piano. Later, after my wife had the delivery, the doctor came out with the good news that my wife was fine. I had a brand new, healthy baby girl. And we're standing there, and another doctor walked up to the physician who had just completed the cesarean surgery and delivered my child and said, excuse me, doctor, I just want to tell you that you performed brilliantly in there. It was an honor to assist you. And I turned to him and said, now tell the truth. You've just brought a new life into the world and saved another, and you've had one of your colleagues tell you it's an honor to be in your presence. For heaven's sake, could you honestly say you wish you'd been a musician? And the doctor grinned and said, well, it went pretty well in there. And we laughed, and he said, and I know exactly why, too, because this morning I got up early and for an hour I played Chopin at the piano. <laughs> what kind of seeds do we plant in our garden to make our own life beautiful and to allow that beauty then to shine in the lives of others? There's the bodhisattva vow that's often taken in Buddhist communities. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all, to awaken them all. It's a pretty serious intention, isn't it? <laughs> but Zen Master Wei Nang, when he speaks of it this way, he says, Learned audience, all of us have now taken the vow to deliver an infinite number of sentient beings, as one does at the beginning of a sitting in many temples. But what does it mean? Does it mean I, Hui Nung, am going to deliver them one by one with my own hands? And who are these sentient beings? They are the delusive mind, the deceitful mind, the arrogant mind, and such like minds. And they all need to be delivered by wisdom and compassion. Inside and outside, there is no difference. When we take an, inten an intention or dedication, it is, as I said, like setting the compass. Circumstances will change. What co compass setting do we follow? The Dalai Lama follows the vows that are found in the teachings of this elder of India, um, Shantideva, of 1,500 years ago, the vow he takes is, through all of my practice and all that I have done and undertaken, may the pain of every living creature be cleared away. May my words shine the lamp of Dharma into every heart, and may I be the doctor and the medicine and the nurse for all sick beings of the world. May I become food and drink to clear the pain and hunger of all those who are hungry and thirst. May I become an inexhaustible treasure for those who are destitute, a protector for those without protection, a guide for all travelers, a bridge, a boat, a ship to cross over the troubled waters, a lamp for those desiring a light, a wish-fulfilling jewel, and may I be the source of life for all boundless creatures until awakening brings joy and compassion to them all.
That's a pretty amazing vow to take, isn't it? But intention is much more immediate as well. When you're speaking to somebody and there's a conflict, before you say something, look in your heart and see what is the intention. Is it to get even, to prove your point, to be better than, or is it to listen or to understand or to connect? Because the same words spoken with different intentions will have completely different results. Or before you act, if you have a question about your action, ask, what is my intention? Is it greed or fear? Or is it love or care or compassion? The intention behind the action is what will direct your life it is what will create the response. It doesn't mean that we always know what we're doing. In fact, it's somewhat the opposite. This from my friend Frank Ostaseski, who runs the Zen Center Hospice in the city. He wrote, The day before his death, John was in a waking coma, his face full of tension, his head thrust all the way back. The muscles in his throat were tight and constricted. He couldn't bring his head forward. His breath, each breath was a struggle. Clearly this was a stage in dying, but to me something seemed stuck. A famous teacher told me that his spirit was trying to leave his body and I should touch the top of his head to show the way. A physician told me to increase his morphine to relax the breathing. A body worker told me to hold pressure points in his feet. I tried these things, but to me, something continued to stay stuck. Instinctively, I wanted to wrap myself around him, so I climbed into bed and cradled him in the curve of my arms, rocking him back and forth and singing sweet lullabies like you would to a child. Every parent has done this to a frightened or sick baby. And as I sang softly in his ear, kissed his forehead, my hands knew what to do, though there was no goal in mind. My fingers caressed his throat, stroked his face, and my open hand circled his heart again and again. We lost all sense of time. I could feel him slowly sink into me, my body cushioning what was left of his bony form. Eventually, his throat began to relax. His head came forward. His eyes opened. They looked relieved. Afterward, I wondered if I'd done the right thing. Maybe I should have followed the teacher's advice had I pulled him back from some near-death state, stopped some process of release. I don't know, really. I simply know that the heart has to be soft before any of us can be free. And in these difficult times, we don't always know what the right thing is to do or to support, but we can listen to our intentions. The Dalai Lama says that is the thing that he relies on most. He said, sometimes I have the worst decisions to make. I don't know what to do. So all that I can trust is my best and deepest motivation. 
And I don't mean the kind of intention, you know, because there is also the road to hell which is paved by good intentions. You remember that. That's the intention of somebody that you're trying to control or fix or something that you need to get, your own sense of possessiveness, you know, or fear. So if we are to work with the intentions of the heart, we have to be really honest because those kind of intentions are based on a delusion, and it's really the delusion of separateness, the delusion of not seeing who and what we really are. Even the Dalai Lama struggles. You know, I remember this story, I believe that it's true. Some young Tibetans have come to him in recent years and said, you know, 50 years you've been trying to get our country back, everything, the temples destroyed, a million of our people killed, uh, you know, the sacred places burned. We need to go in there and fight. We've got to get stinger missiles, you know, the whole thing that's happening. We need to get um, warriors back in the mountains and fight. And um, your policy hasn't worked. And apparently the Dalai Lama looked back at these young people and said, you know, I'm not sure if I've done the right thing. Maybe, maybe you're right, he said. "Um, And maybe I shouldn't be the leader of the country. If you all feel that there is a better way to do this, and you believe that, because I don't know, then you must do so, and I would resign as the Dalai Lama, as the leader. He said, but... I couldn't be the leader and go and start a war. I I cannot ask people to kill one another. I simply cannot do it. So here, you know, you wonder about your own struggles. It's not just yours. It's our human struggle, all of us. So some weeks ago, a young Native American girl went to her elder, to this grandmother, And she said, Grandmother, all these images of the New York catastrophe and the things that are happening in the world, what is it like for you? And the grandmother said, I feel like I have two wolves in my heart fighting. And one of the wolves is vicious and wants defense, but it also wants revenge and retaliation. And the other wolf is more caring and compassionate cares for all of the pups and all of the wolves of the world. And they're fighting one another. And the little girl said, Well, Grandmother, which of these wolves will win? And the grandmother said, My child, whichever wolf I feed, this too is the quality of intention. What is the intentions that we feed? O nobly born, remember who you really are. In the end, what we are looking for in this human life is so simple. The questions at the end, did I love well? Did I live with, from my heart, really honestly? Because the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. Did I live with integrity? 
there is within each of us tremendous compassion and the possibility of great wisdom. We all sense it. To sit and take the time to listen inside to what is our motivation and make in your own life an intention to set your inner compass from which you wish to live. On Gandhi's tomb, this great big lawn by the Ganges River outside of Delhi, there's a kind of memorial for Gandhi. And inscribed in the stone where his body was burned is a simple phrase that says, before you act, think of the poorest person you have met and ask yourself, will this act be of any benefit to them? That was his way of living in this world. Martin Luther King, who said, I'd like somebody to say on that day that Martin Luther King tried to give his life serving others. I'd like somebody to say on that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I'd like you to say on that day, I did try to feed the hungry, that I tried to love and serve humanity. And if you want to say I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice, that I was a drum major for peace, a drum major for righteousness. I just want to leave a committed life behind. <coughs> if the element of the truth seeker did not exist in us, there would be no turning toward the enlightenment of the heart, says the Buddha. No longing for liberation, nor a seeking for it, nor a finding in it. But because the element of awakening and truth-seeking is in your heart, there is a longing for liberation, and there is already the seed of awakening. Water it, nourish it, care for it, and plant it in the world. Let's sit for a minute. Even in these busy times, let yourself slow down. Walk along the ocean or in the 
paths now that the rain has come. Spend some time outdoors and feel the turning of the seasons. Sit quietly in meditation. Let your mind quiet and your heart open and listen so that the intentions behind your actions are the most beautiful seeds you can plant. Let's end with a very simple chant, then we'll go out into the evening. In India, when you meet someone, the greeting is namaste, put your hands together, which means I honor the divine within you. And the root of that word namaste in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to honor or bow to. So let's just chant the word namo nine times and you can feel what it is in yourself and in one another and in the world that you wish to bow to, pay respects this evening, and then we'll go out into the autumn rainy season night. Na Blessings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.